Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nix, content producer for Label Sessions. And in this episode, Maxine Maggie of Label Sessions talks to Philip Lockwood Hobbs. Philip is a marketing and digital transformation leader for over 25 years of experience, leading agencies like Whitespace and Dentsu Creative to creative, strategic, and technical success. His focus today is startup opportunities that address our climate, looking to address impact strategy and growth. Over to Philip and Maxine. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, We know you as someone who has cultivated and grown a creative agency at Whitespace um, based in Edinburgh. And now you're focusing working with startups that are responding to the climate emergency. But perhaps you could take a few moments to share your story um, from joining Whitespace to today to introduce yourself to the Labour Sessions audience, please. I am indeed, Philip. Um, so I actually way back did uh, the first creative and tech kind of thing I got involved in and passionate about was music. So music was my first love and I came to Edinburgh to do music technology at Edinburgh Uni and I was exploring loads of kind of cool ambient kind of stuff, Brian Eno inspired things. I explored a kind of AI and art installations. And that meant that I got in touch with lots of kind of graphic designers and art college folks rather than uni folks. And so I got really interested in what became new media about the time as I was kind of graduating. So I got a career in new media just temporarily before I went back to Korea. And after 25 years in kind of advertising and media and digital, uh, I didn't want to go back to music. So in the 25 years in advertising, I guess I used creative and tech together. And over the years, I always liked to create something with purpose. And so I guess creative industries was where that connected in terms of working with clients, making impact with clients, using design, creative technology, ideas, concepts. And I also like working with people and leading teams. So I guess all of those things came together to me run Whitespace, this creative agency that I built with Ian and Emma, two of my colleagues, over about 20 years. And then we joined a global network called Dentsu. And then I felt, I always thought agency life was a young man's game and that by 40, I'd be doing something different. Ended up being 46. So six years over my, my, I know, six years longer. Who knew? Too much fun. And so I then jumped in March into a land of kind of doing new things, exploring what I wanted to do. And um, yeah, I've been having a lot of fun working with eight organizations at the moment. I think you've got such an interesting background with the creative elements of music and the tech elements as well and, and kind of a creating new thing. When we've spoken before, you've mentioned the many hats you you kind of wore at Whitespace as the, as the agency was growing. How um, I'm quite curious about how you found moving between roles and that kind of a head shift um, and plugging the gaps where you saw them in the team. Is this something that kind of came quite easily to you or something that you really had to kind of work on to be able to kind of a chop and change between roles? Actually, before we started recording, we were talking about the fact that I moved around schools loads, like seven or eight schools over my childhood. So I think I was always jumping about and chopping and changing um, through that. And I've always been quite an all-rounder. I'm like curious, like learning, like knowing and experiencing new things. So, and I have this ridiculous confidence that I can achieve anything. So I'll kind of throw myself into new things to learn because it's a new experience and I think that I will develop. So I think 
through the story of Whitespace, you know, I came in to do a particular role. I was a developer to start with, but then I'd see a gap or something that else we could do or something that I'd be interested in or something that would help out on. And all the way through, even as I was a board and then I was the managing director, I was always looking at what we needed, like holistically to deliver what we need to do. Is this a project? Is it pitching? Is it um, kind of leaning into the team development, like different areas. So I'll just look at what the weakest thing was we had and try and help make that better. And sometimes that wasn't naturally to my strengths, but you learn stuff and sometimes it was. So I guess variety, chopping and changing and new challenges is just part of what keeps me motivated and excited. So there were things, there were painful points. So definitely I stepped into being a kind of a group account director at one point, which was quite different to what I'd done. And the uncertainty around working with clients and kind of when there was challenge, I wasn't great at that at the point I did it. I was probably about, what, 34-ish. I wasn't that, you know, I wasn't that good at that, you know, the emotional intelligence and stuff. But funnily enough, I got better quicker. Uh, and I'll be way better at it now than I was then. Um, so yeah, that you you learn, you know, and sometimes it's painful because you're rubbish at it or it feels bad and sometimes you just, you're good and it's fun. I want to pick up on something you mentioned just there around having confidence. Quite interested in that. Is that something that is inherent to your nature or something that perhaps you've had to develop? I oddly, as a kid, kind of had two parts of my personality. So one was a, I'm a bit of an outsider. And because I kept moving around school, I was kind of an outsider a lot of the time. So I was an outsider. But then also, I I guess I had an inbuilt drive to do things. And so I remember particularly when I was in primary school, This I used to watch Record Breakers, you know, with Roy Castle playing his trumpet at the start. Sure, 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 sure. Cool. And then uh, an assembly, a brass teacher came and like, messed around playing his trumpet and then said that they were going to do auditions to start learning the trumpet. And I was like, yes, I'm going to learn to play the trumpet. And so I entered the audition um, and I started learning the trumpet. I told my parents, I went home, I said, I'm going to learn the trumpet. Um, and I did. I, I'm I'm a grade eight trumpet player. Um, but that, I think for me, like one of the brass teachers, another brass teacher I had was like, uh, whatever you do, play it loud and with confidence. Because even if you get it wrong, people think it was right. And I think there's a kind of that, that kind of mentality of just go for it. Because even if you only get it 60% right, you've done it. And 60% right means you can learn from the 40% and you can then get better. And I guess that's kind of the character I've gone with. And I guess what's happened over my life is that I've done that. And then I have, you know, I haven't hit gold straight away but with effort I have and therefore the confidence to then go well I actually I can try so you know I'm pretty much tone deaf and my singing is absolutely shy and I've got a first in music technology I can't draw for shit and I ran a creative agency so it's like it's not about what your ability is to start it's that mindset about improvement and just sticking at it so you know that has meant my confidence is then going well yeah let's give it a try and, um, you know, you'll learn quickly uh, either that not your strength or you're going to learn to get better at it anyway. During your time at Whitespace, you guys were 
lots and lots of awards. And one particular stood out to me, which was the Scottish Marketing Society's Employer Brand of the Year. And you just mentioned your kind of a trumpet teacher about saying, you know, do things with confidence. So that's really, I think, an example of, you know, kind of a seeding confidence in, in young people. And if I think about your time at Whitespace, I'm interested in how you approached growing and building teams because the team grew a lot um, under your kind of a tenure at the agency. Let me ask you about how you approached helping teams kind of a flourish and, and really kind of, I guess, what that means to you. That is a huge question. And I think a great caveat to start with is that my view on I kind of my role in helping people flourish when I'm 47 is very different to when I was 30, you know, because learning kind of what I've said already around the fact that you learn by doing means you've messed up along the way. So therefore, if one of the people I worked with when I was in my mid 30s was to hear what I'm about to say, they'd probably think I'm bullshitting because it wasn't maybe the reality at some point in our, our story. But what we did kind of inherit from the founders of Whitespace was this real culture of creating an amazing place to work where people could do their best work. So kind of this supportive culture and the team culture. And so with Emma and Ian, we articulated that and it actually an Anthony Burrell poster, which is work hard and be nice to people. You know, you've seen it a lot. It's been on Instagram. It's everywhere now. But we had a print of that in our boardroom, and that was a really clear articulation for us about the really important pieces around the culture that we had, which was it was absolutely about working hard, but not just hard, about doing the right thing and being smart about it and kind of execution and craft. So, you know, doing good work. But then what was really important underlying that was being nice to people. And that nice to people is not just nicey-nicey. It's kind of supporting them, looking out for them, both our team but also our client you know just being nice you know and so it was all in the culture a balance of you know creativity about passion honesty and trust but then we had this balanced scorecard so it was around being a great place to work for our team our clients kind of having great relationships pushing our work forwards and then financial stability so i think having those things in balance allows team members you know the really really key pieces they need to kind of enjoy and flourish. I read a great book earlier this year, which kind of summarized three different areas of the culture I think we created. And it focused on giving everyone on your team purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And I think that's kind of what we did within our culture, which was our purpose was around doing great work together. And that together was really important. Autonomy in the fact that we didn't, you know, we were relatively light on lots of processes because we wanted people to kind of find their own way and yes we would we would train on some of our processes but if someone then went and did something different if the result was strong it was like go for it that's great and then mastery um so yeah i think we developed that within the culture and then there was lots of things about you know partying hard and having beers on a friday and table tennis and all those things but i think ultimately you can have all of those things but if you don't have the right culture and the right purpose you can have all of those things but I think if you don't have the right purpose and the right culture, then they're just accessories and it won't deliver the right output. You mentioned this is your the perspective, I guess, that you have now as a 40-something. And as a 30-something, it was a bit different because I got a sense that you were kind of learning by doing and in the deep end a lot, I guess. And looking back, are there kind of things that you would do differently? I think the other thing is just around life stage. So in my 30s, I was I still had personal 
achievements or things I wanted to tick off or do. Like I had a drive to achieve for myself. So, you know, we hadn't won all the things we'd done. We had clients we wanted to work on. Um, we didn't know where the agency was heading to in the long run. Um, so I guess we still had that drive, you know, Ian, Emma and I around where's our agency going? What are we doing? What do we want to achieve for ourselves? And as you get older, you shift focus. And maybe I've shifted a little bit younger at 40, something than lots of people do. But you then move the focus of how can I help, you know, other people to achieve? Because I don't need to achieve as much for myself personally anymore. So I think there is those kind of life stages that you go through. You know, the first the first part is around developing skills and being ready to achieve. The next is doing the achieving. And then the third is kind of passing it on and helping others achieve. And I think... I've shifted over the last 15 years into that that final stage. So in my 30s, I was busy with my own. You know, I had, let's say it was 50-50, half it was around, what's Philip going to do? What do I need to achieve? Where's my drive? And half of it was building the agency and helping others. Maybe it wasn't even 50-50. Maybe it was like 90-10. I don't know. People who knew me at the time, maybe. Um, whereas now it's shifted hugely. Um, towards the end of running the agency, I was much more, you know, 75, 80% thinking about how can others succeed? How can they move forward? Um, so, you know, what would I do differently? Probably really hard to go back to that point. Cause I, you know, if I was the age I am now, no, if I had the mindset I had now in my mid thirties, then I would invest more in the mastery side. I mentioned purpose, autonomy, and mastery. I don't think we did enough training of mastery for people. I think there was a lot of mastering your own um, kind of craft. But actually, if you dissect what running a great creative business is about, I think there are more parts of that process that I would focus on mastery. And something I've done over the last few years is I've been training i compete in duathlon which is run bike run and i think that process has taught me where to focus on really specific training for the event that you want to compete in and i think i would be more analytical now about thinking about where to invest more in the right kind of training i think that as a creative business you can focus too much on the creative and not enough on the strategic kind of doing the effort in the right area um but yeah i think there's more i'd invest in the mastery side of training people and giving them more you know, platforms for their own development than, than we did at the time. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. Thinking about the people in your teams, and I guess... You've talked about these kind of a three areas, which are really interesting around, I guess you're kind of a cutting your teeth and you're, it's like the early days of somebody really developing their craft. And then it's this middle period where you're kind of a growing an agency and cultivating other people's mastery and craft. And then as you are now, would you have any advice for people who are in that kind of a first stage of cultivating their own craft and for people in the, in the teams, um, in the creative agency teams, what advice would you give like ambitious creative agency folk who are in that, I guess, first phase? On the whole, I would just put it down to kind of saying yes to any new experience. So, you know, you might have worked on a few different types of projects. If there's another project that's quite different, just head towards the different. So kind of go for variety of opportunity and challenge. 
um, as much as, as we built the agency, we wanted kind of our younger, you know, new kind of interns, placements, whatever, to come on board and stay with us and us develop them. I think there is a benefit to experiencing a range of different cultures and places. So yeah, variety, kind of moving around, seeing new experiences, seeing new challenges from different angles, going maybe client side for a bit, seeing what it's like within an organization. I think it's just, for me, the more rounded your experience of the world and the more that you can see work from different perspectives, the stronger your work's going to be. Um, so I would say to be the best possible, you know, creative agency team player, it's about being a team player. So the best creatives aren't the ones who do the best work themselves. They're the ones whose work in a team creates the best work as a team. So, you know, the, the, the best work you've ever seen that might be on the cutting room floor that never sees life is dead. There's no point in it, right? The best work is the work that actually happens. So team, being able to kind of negotiate, being able to sell your idea, all of these skills are as important as, you know, the actual craft side. So you spent uh, quite a few years at Whitespace, right? About 20 years? Well, actually more, because I was there for a year. And then my wife and I lived and worked in New York for two years, and then I came back to Whitespace. So kind of time spent 21 years, <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of freelance for Whitespace when I was in New York as well. So I guess I was I was pretty much involved in the business for 25 years. So yeah, a long, long time. Amazing. But you left the agency about, was it about five years after Whitespace joined Dentsu? That is right. Yes. So I had five years of the big network experience. Could you explain the, the network setup of Dentsu and then maybe talk about what that was like for you going from, you know, white space as an independent to kind of adjoining Dentsu? Within, so we were based in Edinburgh, very much Scottish market, really well respected in Scotland, but it's quite hard to then start working with clients outside Scotland. So we did start a few clients from Scotland moved to other organizations and we did a project with Lego, which was brilliant. We worked with RAC down in Bristol. So we started bursting out of Scotland because our reputation kind of grew or people we knew moved on, but we were hitting this ceiling. And so we started working on kind of an introducer strategy. And one of the people we started talking to just was Dentsu and they believed that we would be a benefit to their organization and that we would then be able to achieve that objective of working with more clients outside Scotland and kind of developing our, our skills. So that's kind of how it came about. And so Dentsu are really big. So they're kind of the fourth or the fifth of the big networks globally. So they're not quite your Omnicons or your WPPs, et cetera, but they're in that sphere, um, which in a sense I liked because I've always liked working with underdog brands because I think you've got more to achieve and more to prove. Um, so my favorite brand would be one that is brilliant, but hardly anyone knows rather than Nike. And we did work with Nike and they were great, great client. Um, but I'd really like to make the underdog win. I don't know why I like that kind of outsider mentality. Um, so it was good in Dentsu uh, and we initially joined the North part of the business. So, uh, based out of Manchester servicing clients in kind of the North and Scotland together, combining media creative. And then we then became part of Dentsu Creative, which was a global creative agency, and we were in the UK business. And it worked. It was brilliant. Uh, for the first year, we were finding our feet, and there were some challenges. And then the next few years, it was absolutely white space plus. We had all the best things about being 
in Edinburgh about servicing Scottish clients, but then we started working on global pitches. We had people flying out and pitching in America. I pitched in New York, which was brilliant. Uh, we won Shiseido, global beauty brand. So we were working with the team in Tokyo on a kind of a global uh, web UI improvement process. Uh, we worked with international financial reporting standards kind of globally on their kind of brand and some messaging. So it was great. It was really, really good. Um, and our team benefited. So, you know, we had better benefits than we could achieve as an SME, great training opportunities, diversity, inclusion, workshops, kind of guest speakers, really, really brilliant. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was really good. It was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, but then there are also challenges with being part of a, a global network. What kind of challenges are they? For me as a leader, I'd run my own business. Well, I, I'd, I'd had partners, you know, Ian, I and Emma, uh, for, for years ran the agency together. Um, but we had very similar views on what we wanted the agency to be. There was a tension between us, but that's what a team's for, right? To make it better. And it worked. Um, but then once we became fully integrated within Dentsu, then I then wasn't working for this independent. And as I've said, you know, I like the outsider mentality. I was working within a big organized structure and therefore I, there was a lot more, I didn't have really, I didn't, I hadn't learned the skills of managing up and managing sideways. And, you know, I think that if there's any advice to other kind of leaders heading into this kind of context about working within a global network rather than running your own business, I think there's, it's a different mindset about what you're there for, what you're trying to achieve. And also the fact that you need to align with the strategies of the whole organization rather than be delivering your own strategy. And there were part of that global strategy that I absolutely lent into, but I think I didn't have enough corporate experience to know about kind of absolutely owning all the levers on your numbers. And it sounds like lots of opportunities opened up for, for the team. And it's interesting because I think so many agency leaders want to be in a similar position as you've been in where you've kind of a, joined a big global network. But, um, and I think lots of people in that position, it's really helpful for them to hear about your experience and how you then navigate the, the kind of a bigger kind of an ad agency world of Dentsu. But it must have been hard letting go a little bit too. If there's anyone listening to this who wants some advice on how to navigate that, then in a sense, I have done the dream, which is I came in as a developer I was part of a management buyout to then be the leadership of the agency, take on part ownership of the agency. We grew it and then a global network wanted to buy us and we joined them. It's like, you know, it's like the American dream of corporate entrepreneurship, isn't it? You know, I went through the whole journey. Um, I think you probably know already as a business leader that you, when you sell your agency, funnily enough, you've sold your agency. So, you know, Dentsu own Whitespace and which is now called Dentsu Creative. And in one point, my heart is, is like, well, we were amazing. And sadly, the organization isn't as amazing as we were. It's better in other ways, but I, do, I don't think it has that balance of, you know, great for people, great for clients, pushing the work ahead and uh, financial stability. I think that's off kiltered, um, not in the right way. Um, however, my head is like, well, they own it and if they want to optimize the organization for different objectives than we did then that's up to them 
right? And, you know, we're all individuals who can invest our time and effort in doing the things we want to achieve, and they're going to be different to each other. That's what makes the world an interesting place. So, um, yeah, if you are a leader of an agency and you sell your agency, you don't own it anymore, and you've got to figure out who you sell it to. Is that someone you believe in their vision and what they're trying to achieve and what they want to do? And you want to help them do it. If you do, great. You can have a lot of fun, bigger experiences, bigger clients. I could have stepped into client leadership roles, um, but I really like being close to the work. Um, so I like, because I'm such an all-rounder, I like having my finger in lots of different pies and doing lots of things. And that doesn't quite fit the corporate model. I guess, in a way, it's opened up this new world for you now. So you kind of switched things up quite a bit. And you're now, you mentioned you're working with kind of a load, um, you wanted to be close to the work and have breath. And you're doing that. You're working with startups focusing on climate. How are you framing things? Um, do you have like a vision that you're kind of, uh, that you're focusing on? How are you kind of a framing kind of a what's next for you? From a purpose perspective, I decided I really wanted to focus on things that tackle the climate crisis and also wealth inequality. So there's lots of things that we need to make better in the world, but I decided it was really important to focus on the things that I was passionate about and I wanted to kind of move forward. So they're the two I picked. And then I realized that actually, ultimately, the reason all for the climate emergency thing is because of the impact that climate will have on people and most likely the poorest. And so for me, it's all around kind of people. And therefore, if I've got a mission statement, it's helping other people flourish. And kind of leaning into that, I realized that I shouldn't limit myself only to climate and wealth inequality. And actually, I've still probably got lots I can give to people who have worked in the industry. I've worked in a lot. I've got a lot of experience. So I'm kind of using helping people flourish as kind of the, the objective. So now when opportunities come my way, I kind of review them from a how much impact can I have? Do I like these people? And then I still like making money. So, you know, that comes into it sometimes, but ultimately it's it's around the impact that I can have. So climate's really good. I've learned loads of stuff over the last six months, you know, learning something I've talked about a few times so far today. And for me, it was around leaning into new things. So the chief marketing officer for one of the organizations I work with, they're a climate tech. And I've had to make really pragmatic decisions around some of our marketing and brand, which when I was agency side, I would have thought me as a client was an absolute dick. It's like I've made really bad decisions from an agency purist perspective, but you've got to be pragmatic because we're a relatively small organization, budget priorities, like all the all of the bad reasons why clients told me for why they were doing the wrong thing. I'm using all of those reasons. So I'm really enjoying seeing the world from a kind of a different perspective um and kind of learning and also learning around climate and what the levers are and how the ecosystem of kind of climate tech and um natural capital investment works so yeah really enjoying it philip it's time for your quick fire questions are you excited Brilliant. i am bring them okay. on yeah what makes somebody a good traveling companion oh that's excellent um so i think it depends on where you're traveling to doesn't it you tell me um so I'm I'm quite I'm quite mixed. So um, I enjoy lo doing loads of different things. So my wife and I, my wife's a brilliant traveling companion when we are going fine dining. Uh, so my wife and I have been to a number of the world's best fifty. It's kind of our hobby. We've got no more reservations for next March. Uh, so my wife and I do a good fine dining visit together. Uh, it's a lot of fun. We enjoy that. And I'm guessing you like somebody that's like part organized, part open to see kind of the, where the holiday takes you 
No, no, no. Oh, not God. the open. Go on. Well, then. well, well. Okay, open within a framework. So, um, oh dear, have I talked about holiday planning with you before? No, you you haven't. This is this is this is wild. Okay, so when we go on a family holiday, we pick a destination in advance together, and then we do a kind of over dinner workshop where we all come up with ideas about what the most amazing things we could possibly do on that holiday. I stick them all in a Trello board. I then go away. I do my own research. Um, and then I map out the whole holiday on Trello in terms of things to do each day, what kind of timing logistics. And then I then go around the whole family to get their feedback on the plan, tweak it. And then once it's signed off, that's what we're going to do when we're on holiday. So uh, when we went to New York for a long weekend, it was by the hour what everyone was going to do. And we split off and we did different things. Uh, when we're somewhere a bit longer, it might just be one or two things a day. So there's a bit of, it's a structure to have fun around. Uh, like uh, Structured fun. Yeah, like Monica and Friends, rules help control the fun. Uh, so yeah, for us, a framework where everyone knows where we're going and then you, then you can relax because you know you're going to do all the things you want to do and you can do extra if you can. This has been eye-opening. I think you're going to like the next question. This is how you maximize life. It's like you're in New York for four days. Like, what do you want to do? How do you make sure you get it all done? And you also, you can dick around on holiday, like an hour trying to figure out where to get from somewhere to somewhere. If you already know how you're going to get from somewhere to somewhere, you can just relax and enjoy the experience. You do, you mentioned uh, duathlon and you do triathlons, I think too. Um, How long do you train for a triathlon tour? I start training for the next season at the start of December, end of November. So I've got a five-month lead-in to kind of a key race, and then I'll map it out um, and build. Um, so, yeah, no, I'll get up to 15 to 20 hours training by the end. Um, but, yeah, long, slow build. Uh, but I've, I've, I've learned over the last kind of five, six years of being quite serious about it, exactly how to get the best out of mine. Well, summer bodies are made in winter. Um, what is your best triathlon training tip? It's really boring. Not going to judge you. It's all about consistency. That's it. So just staying healthy. Um, I would probably say the thing I've learned the most is around not pushing too hard in training. So there is a there is an approach which should be like easy a lot of the time and then absolutely smash yourself a really small amount of the time. That probably is right, but it's just make sure you just hold a bit back because overtraining an injury ultimately is going to make you slower. So just being consistent and push, building slowly is probably the tip, especially as you get a bit older like me, where you don't recover as quickly. When you're 20, you can go out, smash yourself for three weeks and then run a great 10K. When you get to my ripe older age, better to be consistent and build it. I see. And I think it's probably a good lesson for kind of a, most areas in life, consistency, but still drive and determination. Do you have a favorite part of the triathlon? I guess it's not swimming because you do a duathlon. Correct. So I did a triathlon this year just for fun. Uh, and I won't do another one until I'm 50, I've decided, because then I'll move up an age group. So the swimming... So you will not... do better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so no, duathlon's my key focus. Uh, and I'm going to do the New York Marathon next year. So I'm going to focus on running for a bit. Um, so I was a runner and I, I like cycling because you can do a lot of it without getting hurt and also you can push yourself up a climb and then you can recover and you can do it again um so yeah the world goes by faster you can experience more quicker i like cycling's my favorite it's funny whenever i go swimming i always feel extra hungry afterwards 
I don't know what it is with swimming. Maybe I was conditioned as a child, but I always find swimming makes me extra hungry. It could be that you're thirsty. So you lose a lot. No, no, true. Because you lose a lot more in sweat without realizing it. So therefore, sometimes you don't rehydrate as much. And as you know, when you're thirsty, you can also your body can also tell you you're hungry. So it could be that it's that you should just uh, drink more, drink more water, but not not the swimming pool water. Drinking that is a bad idea. Definitely not. Uh, I don't drink my bath water. I don't drink the swimming pool water. No, thank you. I, saw, I heard a stat the other day. Ah, it was in a comedy uh, stat. It's going to be gross, made. isn't it? Oh, yeah. I don't want to know. Uh, this. I think it was like twenty percent of the swimming pool's urine. It may it was ten or twenty percent. I think it was in a New York YMCA pool. But yeah, ten or twenty percent of the water is, is a bit high. I think. Um, so don't drink it. I would say maybe two to five percent, because think about the size of the swimming pool and then the size of people's bladders and how many people are actually going in the pool. Yeah. So I, I when we lived in New York, I swam in, I swam a bit, and the pools are smaller and not as deep. So maybe you're right. Maybe the prop, so maybe the tip here is. Go to the Olympic Aquathlon. Is it what's the the London Aquatic Centre? Uh, it's a three metre deep, fifty metre pool, and it's quite wide. So it's probably the biggest body of water you can swim in in the UK in a swimming pool, and therefore the urine will be a smaller percentage. Oh, what a delightful thought! And yep. in another life, what would your career have been? I mean, in the life I wanted, I would have been a producer of pop music. Uh, so when I was growing up, I used to use, some of you all know this reference, um, the Pet Shop Boys, like Chris Lowe and the Pet Shop Boys, plays the synths, all that kind of stuff, great pop band. Um, I would have been Chris Lowe in a band like the Pet Shop Boys. Um, that was what I thought I would do. How would you describe your leadership style? We know your holiday style is structured fun, but how would you describe your leadership style? Passionate, honest, open and over time more collaborative and more focused on getting the best out of my leadership team. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Uh, this I will credit to Mark Gorman. Uh, so this was at a point where at the end of my 20s, heading into my 30s, I had always run brilliant projects. Like I led a project, they always went brilliantly. Uh, yeah, they did. I know that doesn't sound very modest, but there it was. And then as I started to lead bigger teams, stuff wasn't always going brilliantly. So, you know, that's inevitable. And I just went into a bit of a downward spiral about confidence. And Mark just, I went for a pint with Mark. I was after some advice. I was feeling a bit low. And he just said, you've just got to think about your job differently. It's not about making gold anymore. It's making the shit smell sweeter. And so it's a really grotty kind of quote, but I think it's a really important insight into thinking about your impacts in the world is not about making everything perfect. It's around having a positive impact on the things that you get in touch with. So, you know, when things weren't going great with a client, my job wasn't around making it perfect. It was around making a plan and moving it forwards and making people feel better about that plan. You don't have to get to perfection. So I think that, you know, that kind of nudging forward and, you know, ultimately, I guess lots of what we talked about is the fact that if you keep at things consistently and just move forwards and learn and are open, that you'll get where you need to go. You might not get there fast, but does it matter? So it's, you know, it's about incremental improvement, not around all the time. Got our last question now, and it's something we, we ask everybody. On a scale of one to 10, Philip Lockwood Holmes, how weird are you? 
2 and 12. That's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for your time. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.